So um, I, I went to a, a conference on classical education recently, and it was helpful and thought-provoking, you know, being out from West Texas and kind of how, what I was expecting. I was definitely the um, least well-dressed of the people there. Most people that were dressed there, they looked like they were senators and whatnot, and, and I was wearing a pullover. Uh, but that's okay. I, I felt fine about that. And it was a very high intellectual ability in the room. I really had to think about things and different speakers came up and shared a whole bunch of different information. And so it was, it was really interesting. We went with a couple of guys from work and we were able to talk through ideas and thoughts about things. And, but, but something kind of bothered me about the whole conference. Something was kind of like just gnawing at me and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But, but I realized that what I heard over those two days, the primary emphasis was on education and legislation as the answer. That way we need to get people educated and you know education's good, but we need to get the right legislation enacted in our state senates and, and, and the legislation is good, but it kind of left you with the feeling of like if we just have enough education, enough legislation, will things work out? And, and so while education and legislation are good, we have to remember that they're just tools, useful tools, but only tools. They're not the, e the ends, they're just some of the means. And so that was what was missing from the conference. So much of what was missing from this conference, even though it was a conference on classical education and so many there was as actually Christian classical education, there was a missing emphasis on the Lord. There, there really wasn't much about the Lord talked about. And like, what does the Lord want from us? Or why are we even doing this thing? Why are even we committed to classical education? Hopefully not just because it's a great educational model, but because it's actually a way of helping us to know the Lord better, to seek truth and beauty and goodness, which are all ultimately found in the Lord. You see, the, the primary focus of that conference, as good as it was in many areas, unfortunately, the primary focus was on what we should be doing and almost nothing on what the Lord must do if we're to have any hope of change. And that really is what it comes down to, is that we as believers need to see how short our arms are. You know, when it comes to being a believer, I like to talk to other people about how we all have T-Rex arms. And you guys know the T-Rex popularized, especially in the Jurassic Park movies, that their arms are not very long, <laughs> not very useful. When it comes to spiritual matters, I believe that we ultimately have T-Rex arms. Our arms are very short, and so what happens is the Lord may put us in situations in life circumstances so that we might see just how short our arms are, so that we might depend on him once again. And so as we come to Psalm 20 and 21 today, we see that David and the people of Israel focusing their hope not on what they can do, but on what the Lord can and must do if they're to have any hope of victory that their only hope of victory comes from the Lord. And, and I hope for us as believers, we come to that place on our own, because if we don't come to that place on our own, of just realizing the only hope I have of any kind of victory is the Lord. The Lord has to work. He has to move. What will happen is the Lord will continually put us in situations till we finally come to that conclusion. The Lord will continually put us in a situation where finally we say, I just can't do it. I, I'm not who I thought I was. I can't get this done. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough money. The Lord has to bring the victory if the victory is going to come. And so that's what hopefully we find ourselves to that place that if we're going to have victory, 
in the moment of history that we're in, that we're going to have, the Lord's going to have to be the one to bring it. This reminds me of Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, where we read these words, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I really think that's the theme of these two psalms here, that our help, if we're to have it, has to come from the Lord. So let's jump into Psalm 20 this morning. First Psalm 20, until you see the title there, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. And so this is a common title that we see so often. It's the same title we're going to see for, for chapter 21. But it's an interesting psalm. It's a little challenging to interpret. And it seems that what David did here with Psalm 20 is he wrote this psalm for the people to sing when the king's about to go to battle. So it seems to be a psalm that David prescribed, that David wrote for the people to pray, to sing for their king to the Lord when their king, David, was going to go to battle. Now, at first, that seems a little self-serving. As I was studying this, I'm like, wow, David, that's kind of weird. But when you think about it, as we move through this psalm, what David is teaching the people is that David is saying, if I'm to have victory, it can only be because God brings me the victory. That's what David's doing. So he's teaching the people, in a sense, to pray for him to pray to the Lord for him. So actually, instead of being a, a source of pride, this psalm is actually uh, shows David's humility. That if he is going to have victory, if he is going to do what God's called him to do, God has to be the one to bring that victory. So I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 20 and then we'll make our way through it. It says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. and the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the, with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. All right. So let's jump into verse one. And, and just by way, so you don't <clears throat> kind of freak out with the situation as you're kind of keeping an eye on where I am verse wise and, and not an eye on the clock or on your phone is we're going to kind of break down chapter 20 verse by verse. But then in chapter 21, we're going to kind of take it in a couple of big sections. So don't get too nervous. All right. Psalm 20 verse one says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Again, so this is for the people to pray to the Lord on behalf of David, be on behalf of the one who's going out to battle for them. And so the people here are desiring that Yahweh would answer the, the king's prayers in the day of trouble, which was the day of battle. You know, David lived in a time where often he would have to go out and battle the armies around him, the nations around him. It was a tumultuous time. And so the people are praying to the Lord, right, to Yahweh. So they're praying to the Lord that they have relationship with, that they know his covenant name. So may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now, it's important, you know, that, that we pray for those who go out and battle for us. 
right? We often forget that there, you know, all around the world, there's conflicts and there's challenges, there's difficulties, and there's people that want to come against us and destroy our way of life. And so we want to pray for that. We want to pray also that God moves in the spiritual battles, right? There are people all throughout the world, missionaries and others, that are fighting on the forefront, right? Trying to reach people with the gospel. We want to pray for those going to battle. And so it's a good thing for us to, to pray for ourselves and the battles that we face, but also say, well, who are those that are battling for us? Who are those that are going out in the front lines? Let's pray for them as well. Now, it is interesting to think about um, Psalm 20, and a lot of people do, in context of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, right? And so think about this in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually goes out and battles for you. He's constantly interceding for you and I at the right hand of the Father. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ goes out and kind of battles for us, that it's encouraging to know that we're in Christ. You know, a student was asking me the other day in, in my Revelation class, was asking me is like kind of, you know, God's up here and like Satan and the angels, you know, and and the demons, they're all kind of like right here. And then kind of where does that leave us as Christians? You know, kind of what's our authority in relation to, you know, the demonic forces. And there's all kinds of different ideas, but I was like, well, how can I simplify this? I said, for you and I as believers, we're in Christ. That's where we are. Okay, we're in Christ. And so we need to remember that in the battles that we're going out in, we want to only choose battles, right, that Christ would fight. So if we go out and we say, well, I know I'm in Christ, but I'm going to fight this battle, and it's not something that really lines up with Jesus, well, then we're, we're kind of going AWOL. So what we want to do is say, what are the kind of battles that Christ fights? What are the kind of things that he's about? What are the kind of the, the things that he wants to set right? Let me engage in those battles. Let me not engage in these battles that I just choose on my own. Now, continuing on in verse one, it says, may the name of the God of Jacob defend you. Now, remember in the Bible, whenever we see name, God's name is not like a magical incantation. Okay, it's like, Lord, may I please have a Lamborghini in Jesus name. Yes, I'm getting it. Okay, maybe a matchbox he'll give me, uh, but, but not the real thing. And so we have to remember that, you know, that we might enjoy kind of like, you know, different stories and stuff like that, that maybe involve magic or things like this, but that's not how God works. God's name is not some magical incantation we can use. So whenever it says the name of God here, it's speaking of God's character, God's attributes, who he is, what he's like. And so that's important for us to understand because the more that we get to know the name of God, his character, his attributes, what he's like, then what's going to happen is that's going to align us to reality. Because God is the creator of reality. God is the ultimate reality. He is the uncreated one. He has made everything. So the more that we get to know him, the more we line up with reality. So often we're frustrated as believers because we don't really know God's name. You know, we don't really know what he's about. And so we convince ourselves that what it means to follow God, God's name is no believer should ever have anything uncomfortable. We convince ourselves of that. That's not part of his name. <laughs> His name, his character is, hey, I'm going to put you through tribulations, difficulties, hardships, because I want to make you into something that, that I want. And so it's important for us to know that, to know his name, know who he is. And then also, I love how he's referred to here as the God of Jacob. And so there's continuity here. Please understand, there's continuity. 
that who God was during the time of Jacob is who God is in the time of David. That God doesn't change. That, that God, it says in the scriptures that he's not a man, that he should lie, that he doesn't change. Um, you know, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so it's important to us to remember this, that God doesn't change with the culture. Please hear me in that. God does not change with the culture. God, God doesn't, God doesn't look at opinion polls. God doesn't determine what he's going to do by what the Barna group says people think about God nowadays. God doesn't do that. God is who he is. He can't change. He can't be different because for God to change would be going from perfection to imperfection. From complete righteousness to less than righteous. And that's not possible for God. And that actually should be very encouraging to us. Because we don't have to get up every morning and say, well, I wonder what in the world God's like today. You know, for, for all of us, if you're in relationship with people, you wonder that at times, right? I know people that have to interact with me. They're like, what, Steve, am I getting today? I understand that. That's not how the Lord is. The Lord is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that should be great comfort to us. Because if we know what he's like, then we can have right relationship with him. And he doesn't change. Now, also, it says, that he, may he defend you. So may the God of Jacob, who's always the same, defend you. That phrase, or that word defend, literally means set you on high. May, may God set you on high, may set you above. When it comes to military engagements, whoever has the high ground, they usually win the battle. And so that's what it's saying. And, and so I want to encourage you and me, the day is coming where this is going to be answered for us, when we're going to be literally set on high. When you and I are in heaven, we're going to be literally set on high. They we're going to be far above. So this is coming for us. So that takes us from saying, well, this is merely something that we can maybe get some application from, but from the time of David to something like, this is going to be my reality. The day is coming when you as a born again believer are going to be taken to heaven and you're going to be set on high. And Jesus is going to say to you, hey, my throne's plenty big. Why don't you come sit with me? Let's sit a while. And it's going to be an awesome thing. So it's encouraging for us, especially in the dark days in which we're living, to remind ourselves of these truths. Verse 2 says, may he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. So a couple things to consider here. If you're familiar with Hebrew literature and you kind of picked up on the Psalms, whether you realize it or not, there's this kind of repetition with slightly different words to really emphasize a truth. And so what we have here is, you know, God residing in a certain sense in Jerusalem. And so what, what they're calling for here is for God not to remain, if you will, in Jerusalem. But as David goes out to battle, may God go with him. May God go with him to battle. And so this, the sanctuary is a reference to the tabernacle. You know, remember that the temple was not yet built. The temple was built, the first temple was built by David's son Solomon. And so right now there's the tabernacle, the tent, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then this word Zion here references Jerusalem. And so again, the idea is the people are crying out to God, hey God, would you go out and help David? Would you go with him? And this reminds me of something that um, Moses would pray in the book of Numbers. So would you turn to Numbers chapter 10 for just a moment? Turn left in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Now, as you're, as you're turning there, I would encourage you sometime to get, get bold and brave and read the book of Numbers again. Uh, the book of Numbers, uh, unfortunately, it has a, uh, an unfortunate name. 
right? Numbers, well, maybe it's not unfortunate if you're, if you're a math person. You're like, Where, where's the equations? Um, but uh, numbers is actually the Hebrew name for numbers is in the wilderness, which is a lot cooler title. Um, and then as one of my students said the other day, Mr. Westfall, Num- the book of Numbers is, is really underrated. <laughs> and I was like, yes, it is. There's so many good stories in the book of Numbers. Uh, but here in Numbers chapter 10, look at verses 33 through 36. And I love this. They're, so they're, they're heading out from Sinai. They're departing from Sinai where they'd been for two years. And then start picking up the story in verse 33. It says, so they departed from the mountain of the Lord, and that's Sinai, on a journey of three days. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day and when they went out from the camp. And here it is. So it was whenever the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. I just love this beautiful imagery that whenever Moses went out with the people as they traveled, that he would pray, Lord, rise up and go before us and scatter the enemies. And then when they would camp, hey, Lord, come back to us. And I just love this beautiful imagery of wanting the Lord to be there with you. Just so, Lord, be my front guard, be my rear guard, you know, be the, the one who goes before me, be the one who settles on me. It's a beautiful picture because as you see throughout the scriptures, God is willing to manifest himself. He's willing to come into the lives of those who want him. That, that's, that's how it is. That the person who wants relationship with God, wants to spend time with him, wants him around, God says, I'll show up. And the person and the nation who says, get out of here, we don't want you, we don't be a part of you, God says, okay. I was going to withdraw himself from that. And so I, I love that picture, and I think it's something helpful for us to, to pray and to consider as, Lord, when I get up today, would you go before me? Right? Would you go before me and, where, and lead me and guide me, and then when I go to bed at night, would you, would you come back to me? I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of wanting the Lord's presence in our lives. All right, continuing on in Psalm chapter 20, verse 3, it says, uh, May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. And so basically here, you know, the people are crying out, May the Lord respond to your faithfulness and obedience, David, to the fact that you gave these sacrifices. And so remember, as David is writing this for the people to sing, kind of on his behalf, would be coming upon David to actually do these things, right? It would be incumbent upon David to be someone who remembered to give offerings to the Lord, who remembered to give burnt sacrifices. So there's actually an accountability built into this that as David would hear the people praying this for him, he's like, okay, this is things I need to do. This needs to be a part of my life. And I think that's good for us to have that accountability, to let people know, hey, I'm a believer. And then we don't live up to that to fess up to it and say, yeah, I wasn't living as a believer. I need to do things the way that God's called me to do them. Now, now, it's an important point, though, I want to make about verse 3, that we cannot get God to move on our behalf by doing this or that. Okay? So it wasn't, it wasn't a merely transactional thing. Our, our relationship with the Lord is not merely transactional. All right, I've got to win this battle. Let me offer this burnt offering. All right, it's guaranteed. Okay, as I've said it many times before, and I have to remind myself, God is not a cosmic Coke machine. Okay, he's not like, here's my prayer. Let me put it in the machine. Let me push the button of the thing I want. Now here I receive. 
That's not how God works. And so it's important for us to remember, okay, I'm not doing these things because that guarantees that I'm going to get what I want from God. No, I'm doing these things because this is what God's called me to do. And then it's up to him, right, to choose how he wants to work this situation out. Verse 4 says, may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. And so um, what they're crying out here, what they're calling for is they want David, okay, to, uh, to, to basically achieve his heart's desire, to, to be able to have success in battle. Why? Well, because he's fighting for them. Right, David is fighting for the people, for the welfare of the people, and so they're calling on to God to grant his desire and fulfill all his purpose. And this is important. It's interesting, you know, is he kind of the heart's desire there? Um, the scripture says, and somewhere else in the Psalms, that maybe Psalm thirty-four, I can't remember exactly, says, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart." So often, James tells us that we have so many problems in our life. And we have so many kind of like wars and conflicts because we lust and we don't have. And then we don't have because we want to spend it on evil desires. And so the, the key here is saying, well, how can I get myself in a position where God answers my prayers? Well, start doing what God wants you to do, right? Start desiring the things that God wants. Start, put yourself in a position where you say, Lord, I, I want to do what you want me to do. I, I want the things that you want. Change my heart. I know that my heart is self-centered and I want to do something different. It's interesting, again, going back to that conference I went to and there's a couple of former students who are now tutors at the school and then we're talking about a lot of things and, and they're, they're a couple of sharp guys, so it was really challenging me. But one of these themes that we came back to over and over again, it's kind of like our trouble with the Lord, is, is all of our troubles with the Lord, it ultimately comes down to this. <clears throat> there's God's will and there's our will. And that's really, I, I think that's fundamental, that God wants us only to do his will. And he's unwilling to negotiate with that. You know, you know, Jesus came to earth and said, you know, I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And he says, my food to do is the will of the Father. And so we kind of do the math on the whole deal is if the greatest person who ever lived didn't have a will of his own, but only wanted to do the Father's will, well, who in the world am I to have a will of my own? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. If Jesus Christ so, you know, he, he, he said, I'm only going to do the Father's will, nobody else's, not even mine, just the Father's. Well, then how in the world can I walk around and be upset because God doesn't do things my way? Well, he, he never said he was going to. So the key for you and I to live fruitful lives as believers is to say, Lord, I just want to do your will. Whatever your individual will is for my life, let me just do that. That's what I want to do. And that's kind of the, what we have here is as long as David was in line with God's will and what God wanted to do in David's life and what God wanted to do in the life of Israel, then these things would come to pass. But what are all the problems that we have on planet earth is because people want to do their own will. People don't want to do the will of God and therefore the world, for the most part, is a dumpster fire because everybody wants their own way and it can't happen. God's not going to submit to that. Now, as we kind of think about verse four again, right? Then we're remembering again, applying to ourselves that the Lord Jesus is the one who fights for us, that the Lord Jesus is the one who brings us victory. And that's really important for us 
Because as long as you and I think it's I've got to get the victory done and it's through my praying and my this and my that and I've got to get, then we're going to be very, very discouraged. But he's saying, the Lord is the one who brings me the victory. Then I can trust in him and ask him to do that work. Now, also remember that though you and I are called to fight the good fight of faith, we're not fighting on our own. Because sometimes we could say, well, Jesus fights for me, but also Paul says to fight the good fight of faith. Well, how does that work together? Well, remember, you're in Christ. And so it's important for us to understand, to remember that the triune God is fighting for us and through us. That the triune God wants to give you and I the power to fight through whatever difficulty and spiritual oppression and whatever we come against, God wants to give us that power to fight that good fight. So it was trusting in the Lord to fight for us and to fight through us. Verse five, he says, we will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now it's interesting, and I've talked about this before, but whenever we come to the word salvation, we need to look at the context. Okay, we jump to salvation as like salvation from hell. Salvation from God's judgment. And, and that, that can be, a lot of times in the New Testament, contextually, that's what it means. But salvation, please understand, or the word save just means deliver. So it can mean to be delivered from any number of circumstances, any number of situations. And so the salvation that's referred to here in verse 5 is speaking of deliverance from enemies. Deliverance from kind of this, this battle here on earth. Um, and then he says, hey, we'll set up banners in the name of our God, okay, so um, in, in, uh, like to the God's glory, in your name, we'll set up our banners. So what does this mean, set up banners? Well, it's symbolic of victory. You know, you think about, um, you know, like say VE Day in Europe, okay? So May 8th, 1945, and what happens is people put out banners, right? And flags are flying because it's a sign of victory. That's what they're saying. They're saying, Lord, deliver us so that we might put out banners to glorify you, so that we might fly the flag out, so that we might do these things. And so it's this, this idea of celebration, excitement. And it says, may, he fulfill all, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And so answer all your prayers. And again, verse five fits perfectly now as we apply it to Jesus, right? That Jesus grants us salvation and we should rejoice in it. Now, if we fixate on this world, there's in there, I, I, I hate to use the, the word infinite because it's not infinite, but it feels like infinite number of reasons to not rejoice. Mm -hmm. An infinite or near infinite number of reasons to be depressed and discouraged and fearful and anxious and all of those things. I understand, I understand that. And every morning you wake up and there's some kind of new thing to be discouraged about. I understand that. But then we need to focus on the Lord. So the Lord hasn't said us, hey, why don't you focus on every single bad thing that there is? Why don't you really just kind of get down in the sewer and see how bad things are? Why don't you just look around at every wicked thing? No, no, no. Let's do this. Let's rejoice in the salvation that God brings. Let's rejoice in him. Rejoice in the salvation that he's won through Jesus Christ. If every day the first thing we think of is the finished work of Christ on the cross, that's a great way. It's a great thing to rejoice in his salvation and then set up our banners. Now, I'm not saying you need to go home today, you know, put little banners on your car, you know, Jesus saved me or that sort of thing. But we can live in kind of that, we can live in that victory, realizing the victory is won, spiritually speaking. 
and then may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. That's a cool one also to apply to the Lord Jesus, right? That he ever lives to make intercession for us, that he's seated there at the right hand of the Father and said that the Father is, is fulfilling his petitions. To, to, to stop and take a moment to think, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for me. The Lord Jesus Christ is praying for me. And so that should bring us encouragement. Now, let's continue on now to verse six. He says, um, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Now, this word anointed, it's a Hebrew word, Messiah, and it means anointed with oil. And so the, the kings of Israel, they were anointed with oil um, as they were you know, prepared for service. Uh, as they were anointed king, the, the high priests were anointed as well. And so um, it's this here, you know, maybe a reference to David in this context, um, that, that he, was, he was God's anointed and God was able to save him from battle after battle after battle. You know, and essentially David died of old age. You know, God saved David from every physical battle that he endured. Um, but it's interesting here, too, to think about this, that God saved David, who was his anointed, but God's ultimate anointed, God didn't save. You know, God's ultimate anointed was, was Jesus Christ. And God chose not to save him on the cross. Why? So that we might be saved. And you think about that battle of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, Lord, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what did he say? Not my will be done, but yours. And so it comes again, again and again and again to this central issue of whose will is going to be done. Is, is it going to be God the Father's will or somebody else's? And so God can save his anointed, but he chose the reason why God can save you and I is because he allowed his ultimate anointed Jesus Christ to die to die on the cross so that we might be saved. And then continuing on in verse six, it says, he will answer him from his holy heaven um, with a saving strength of his right hand. So I love this, this confidence in the Lord's deliverance. This confidence that he'll answer him from his holy heaven with a saving strength of his right hand. And so there's an application for you and I as believers that we should have the utmost confidence in the Lord. And the only time, I think you and I lose confidence in the Lord as we move from the Lord to circumstances. And then in, in, in our spiritual algebra, we cannot understand how this circumstance can coincide with God's plan. And therefore, I don't have confidence in God anymore. But may I just humbly say that none of us are smart enough to figure out God's plan. That, that all of us would be wise to, to, to listen to the psalmist I think it's David in one of the Psalms where he says, I don't concern with myself with things that are too high above me. David essentially says, there are lots of things in this life that are above my pay grade. I don't pay attention to them. <laughs> I don't think about them. So you and I have no way of figuring out how these different circumstances that are so dreadful to us can kind of be woven into God's plan. But God can do that. God can figure it out. God will take care of it. And so you and I should have the utmost confidence in the Lord. And then we can do this, knowing that he will either deliver us from death or he will deliver us through death. And that's how it's going to happen for all of us. Uh, apart from the rapture of the church, those are the only two choices that we're going to have. Many times, maybe you've experienced that God's delivered you from death. Okay, maybe there have been situations and circumstances, but you know what? The day is coming unless he raptures us that he's going to deliver us through death. He's going to allow us to die 
But that, die, that death is going to be the delivery system that takes us into his presence. Verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. I love this. So it's not trusting in material wealth, not trusting in material defenses, but in the Lord God. Now, yeah, we know that, that nations have military and all that kind of stuff, and, and, that's, and that's great. That's well and good. But when it comes down to the ultimate trust, it can't be in mere military strength. It's not going to work. And so for you and I, this is a great, great question to ask ourselves is what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in some material thing? Am I, am I trusting in that? Because we know that anything material can be gone in an instant. It's just, it can go away. doesn't matter how long you've been saving up for retirement. All that can be gone in a moment. It's just how it works. So, the, so no material thing is worthy of our trust. We need to trust. When that, that word remember there, it means it's, it's trusting remembrance in the name of the Lord our God. Verse 8 says, they have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Okay, so who are those who have bowed down and fallen? Those who have trusted in chariots and horses. Those who have trusted in the material things. Those who have made that the focus of their life. If I just have enough stuff, if I just have enough defense, if I just have enough, then I'm gonna be okay. And, and David, the psalmist here, or it's David and the people singing it out, that those people have fallen, but then who have risen and stand upright? The people who remember the name of the Lord our God. That's who stands. That's who rises up. And, and so, like, when we're fearful and afraid, then what we need to do is we need to think about the people in human history, you know, that, that have been believers that have suffered the worst and just it went through horrible circumstances and, and maybe were just martyred for their faith and think about where are they right now? Well, they're standing in uprights in heaven. And so you think about Stephen bowed down to the ground as people are throwing stones at him until they kill him and say, well, where's Stephen right now? Well, Stephen's there in the presence of the Lord. Well, the apostle Paul was beheaded by Rome. Well, where's Paul right now? Well, he's standing upright in heaven. And we go down the list over and over again to remind ourselves of this truth so we might have the courage to continue on in the midst of a very difficult time. Now, I want to kind of close this, or I'm not close this chapter, but one thing that verse 8 reminds me of is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, where we read these words, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not grow weary and they shall walk and not faint. It's important to remember that as you see that, that verse, as you remind yourself of that verse, there's, there's kind of, um, we might say, a regression. I don't know if a regression is the right word, but a slowing down. That, you know, at the beginning, there's a mounting up with wings like eagles. And then, well, it can't fly anymore, so let's run. And they can't run anymore, so let's walk. And that's how it's going to be if we live long enough. They started with a lot of vigor, you know, and then things slow down over time. But what happens through the strength of the Lord, we can continue on and finish our race to the end. Verse 9 says, save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. It's a crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And it's interesting because in, in this, in, in my translation, the New King James, king is capitalized in verse nine. And most commentators agree that this is calling on the ultimate king, God. 
They're calling on the, they, that God is the ultimate king. So even though they were praying for David, please understand, their hope was not in David. Because if their hope was merely in David, they would just say, David, you got this. Do it. But their hope wasn't in David. They were praying for a greater king to help their king. And so we can't lose sight of that. That, that if you and I become the kings and queens of our own lives and like, I got this and I can figure this out and I've got this and that we don't seek the Lord, then we're destined for failure. But we need to remind ourselves, it's like, well, whatever God's part, God's call, called me to play in my life, okay, it's, it's a pretty small part. I'm not the main character. God's the one. And so calling on the ultimate king, because he's going to answer us when we call. All right. The Lord is our only hope. Let's remember that. Now, Psalm 21. Psalm 21, it seems to be connected with Psalm 20. It seems to be after the victory. So Psalm 20, they go out, they have the victory. Psalm 21 seems to be kind of the after party, uh, the victory after the battle. And so let's, I'm going to read through this Psalm quickly and then we'll move through it. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him and the blessings meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. The fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from the, among the sons of men. For the intended evil against you, they devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Okay, so verse one, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your great salvation, and in your salvation, how greatly he shall rejoice. So uh, this is joy and rejoicing in the Lord's strength and salvation. Notice it's, it's the, the, the king, David, was rejoicing in the Lord and his strength and his salvation, all that kind of stuff. We're often so discouraged because we're focused on our lack of, lack of strength, our lack of power, our lack of ability, our lack of getting things done and making a change in this fallen world. But when we do that, when we find ourselves discouraged, there's a sense in which is we're right to be discouraged. There's a sense in if we're trusting in ourselves, of course the only outcome is discouragement. So what should we do? We'll turn our faces away from ourselves. <laughs> Look to the Lord. The Lord's the one in whom we can rejoice. The Lord's the one in whom we can trust. The Lord's the one who brings salvation and rejoicing. And so our strength is not a suitable ground for rejoicing. Our strength is fleeting at best, but God's strength and salvation is unchanging. Please let me say that again. God's strength and salvation is unchanging. Just because the majority of the world wants to play the fool doesn't mean that God's strength is any less. It doesn't mean that his salvation is diminished in any way. He is still the same. And we can take courage in that. Verse 2, 
You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. So, so David's prayer was answered. David's prayer was answered. He had that victory. And it's important to understand, too, you know, that, that Jesus prayed certain things. Like Jesus prayed things like, hey, Father, I, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you view them through the world. And that uh, the day is coming where, where I want them to, to be with me where I am. And please understand that prayer is going to be answered. The day is coming where you are going to be with him. And, and the, everything that you experience, all the hardships and the hurts of this world, are you going to say are not worthy to be compared <laughs> with that eternal weight of glory? They're going to be like waking up from a bad dream. Verse three, let's, verse, let's look at verses three through seven. But here's what I want to do. You know, we can understand these in relation to King David, and that's great. But I also want you to consider them in relation to you as a believer to Jesus Christ. You, you see, God, this is God's idea, not mine, to give us crowns. Well, well, who do you give crowns to? You give crowns to victors, right? Like in the olden days, they would have these laurel wreaths if you want to race. And so there's a certain crown there. But you also give crowns to royalty, and so we are adopted into the family of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there's a sense, right, where we're our royalty, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God has done. You're, we're a part of his kingdom. So I want you to, as I move back through verses three through seven, I want you to think about them in relation to who you're going to be, in relation to who you're going to be in heaven. It says, for you will meet him with blessings of goodness. Think about that. Think about the moment that you enter into heaven. Do you think that God's going to say to you, well, hey, how are you? <laughs> I guess you made it. Good job. Sit over there. That's not how it's going to be. There's blessings of goodness. Notice you set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked for life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Think about that. That's you and me. We ask that Jesus Christ would save us from our sins. So what does he do? He gives us that life. And then we enter into heaven and he's going to give us those length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. So we're going to experience that great salvation. We're going to experience the honor and majesty that God gives to us because of who he is, not because of who we are. He says, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. That's going to be us. In his presence, we're going to be most blessed forever. We're going to be exceedingly glad. As David said, you know, one day in your tabernacle, one day in your presence is, is worth a thousand elsewhere. It says, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the mercy of the most high, he shall not be moved. That's going to be you and I. That when we're there in heaven, we're not going to be moved. We're going to be completely stable for the very first time. There's going to be nothing to move us from that place. Now, as we think about this, as this is our experience in heaven, then we also see for those who choose against him in verses 8 through 12, the, the assured defeat of all God's enemies. So it's related to those enemies that David defeated, but it's also related to every single person who ends up there at the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. Every single person who chose against him. Okay, And so you and I, it's very easy for us 
to to either be uh, you know upset about kind of God's judgment and we don't trust him and we kind of somehow think that we're more righteous than he is. Let me just say this. I know everybody in this room, you and I are not more righteous than he is. We're not, right? No, no one in human history is more righteous than, than, than God is. So if God chooses eternal judgment and that's the most righteous thing, then you and I may say, well, I don't understand it, but who am I to disagree with it? And then secondly, it's also uh, some, an encouragement that the, the wickedness that goes on in this world will not go unjudged forever. God is going to settle his accounts. He says, your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. Talks about in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment that, you know, that death and Hades and the sea and everything gave up all the unbelieving dead so that they might be judged. It says, you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, their descendants from among the sons of men, for they intend evil against you. They have devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back and you will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Now, as we look at our world and we see this, we see people gather against God, gather against believers, and we just say, why doesn't God wrap the whole deal up? It's interesting. Peter tells us in 2 Peter, the reason why he hasn't done that is because he's long-suffering. He's patient. He's trying to draw people to repentance. He's given them an opportunity for salvation. And so this, this, we look at this, and so there's always that tension. There's that balance. I'm going to pray for the lost in the midst of this difficult world, but also I'm going to realize that the day of judgment is coming if a person continually rejects him. Verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your Power. I love this. And this brings us back to that, that right focus here at the end, right? Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. So God lift it up and we will sing and praise your power. So who is it about? It's about the Lord's strength. It's about the Lord's power. It's not about my strength or your strength. It's not about your power or my power. It's about his. And that's the only stable place. If you and I, judge our kind of mental and emotional and spiritual well-being on how well we do each day, we're going to be continually disappointed, continually frustrated, continually discouraged because we are unstable people. But there's one who's stable always, and that's the Lord. He's always strong. He's always powerful. He's always glorious. So we can always sing and rejoice in him. So with that in mind, I want to close with one last song. Psalm chapter two, to remind us, to encourage us, because I think Psalm two really wraps up all of these ideas quite nicely, that we're to trust in the Lord and the salvation he brings. Psalm two, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. 
Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Here it is. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him.